Hi there, this is Jim the Keys Bartender coming to you from Key Largo. If you're not familiar with the Keys Bartender podcast, the Keys Bartender podcast talks about Keys life, bartending, and life in general. So I sound kind of like uh, easygoing here. Um, I've had uh, a busy week, you know, and from the previous episode, I had a memorial service uh, for my father who passed away about five weeks ago. Sound kind of like matter of fact about it, but I'm going to talk about that a little later. I also, since the previous episode, we talked about airport bars. I wanted to talk about getting general bartending knowledge. And there was always a discussion in a lot of these online groups about how the importance of going to bartending school and or additional training. I, on one hand, uh, I have two ideas on that and I want to talk about that when years ago when I was in college I wanted to become a bartender and I did a little banquet bartending and things like that so I knew how to pour a drink and there's a difference between doing banquet bartending and doing let's say retail restaurant bartending and what I did is a friend of mine gave me a uh, recommendation at a local, well, local, it was a downtown Philadelphia nightclub called PT's. And they gave us, they gave written tests to their staff, especially their bartenders, to see how much knowledge they had. And I, I think I took the test the first time and I failed miserably. What I originally had done is I took a little black address book and I used that to put little abbreviations on cocktails and how to make them. And I realized quickly when I was taking the test that I had written down every drink, every drink that I thought that I needed to know. And it turns out I didn't need to know all those drinks. I just needed to know things like garnishes, what type of glass to use, how to do a pour, and things like that. And uh, going into the job, when I eventually passed the test on the second try, I still really didn't know how to bartend. I was kind of faking it while I was there. The first couple weeks I worked there, I was making some pretty horrendous mistakes with my drinks. And how to do them. And I, I think it was pretty apparent to the people that I worked with that I had very little experience as a bartender. And some people say, well, listen, you know, that's why you go to bartending school to get a basic knowledge. And you know what? I'm not going to be, uh, for experienced bartenders, you'll see a, uh, a lot of people just say, hey, listen, bartending school is not the way to go. They just try to teach you everything and you just don't get that kind of experience that you really need from bartending. And you know what? I think what they do in bartending schools, they try to cram it with a lot of information, which you really don't need. And they don't concentrate on the things you really do need. And that's, uh, I'm going to tell you right now what you really need. General bartending knowledge. You don't need to have every drink down. What you have to know is the basics. You got to know terminology like up, chilled, shaken, stirred. I'm not going to go into each one of those. I'm just telling you those are things you want. You want to learn the proper glass that you put a drink in. 
You know, the difference between a Collins glass and a rocks glass and a martini glass, a wine glass, a pilsner glass, a shot glass. But you could put you could put a shot of liquor in almost any kind of glass. You could put a shot of liquor in a rocks glass. You just gotta watch your amounts that you put in there. Most people if you're gonna uh, when you're gonna begin bartending Generally, you probably want to do measured pours, meaning using a shot glass, a measured shot glass. Most places, when you make a drink, it's about an ounce and a quarter is considered a shot. And so you don't have to learn all these things. I'm going to give you a little order of operation on how to learn. First, learn how to pour a proper beer, whether from a bottle or draft. Just learn how to do it. I'm not going to go over the intricacies of it. I'm just saying you can learn how to do it. And the best way to learn how to do it is by experience and doing it yourself. Learn how to pour wine. And learn how, if you need, if it's a five-ounce pour, make sure you know a five-ounce pour. What a five-ounce pour is in a wine glass. What I do sometimes, if someone's not familiar, if they're using new glassware, and when you're pouring wine, you normally don't um, use a measuring cup with that. But you may have to do that the first couple times to figure out what five ounces looks like in that glass. I've known some places where they've taken a glass etcher and put it on the edge of the glass. If you fill up to this level, this is a five ounce pour. And then they have like the king portion of wine, which could be an additional two ounces. And they mark that too. So once you pour, learn how to pour a beer and pour wine, you got almost 50% of the things you're going to have to do. Now, obviously, there's deeper knowledge when you learn about beer, what beers are necessarily IPAs, what, you know, what beers are stouts, all these different things. That comes with time. It's along with your wine, with the Cabernet, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Zinfandel, White Zinfandels, Proseccos. Champagnes, all those things. But that, once again, it comes with times. So it's best to know the basics. You know, when you're going in, in with the wines, you got your Cabernet, you got your Chardonnay, you got your Pinot Noirs, you got your Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, and then, then you can branch out the Malbecs and stuff like that. But that's a deeper knowledge that comes with time. But you know that your beer and wine and in a place, some restaurants don't have a liquor license. So you have it. You have everything you need to know with a 50, um, with that pouring a beer and pouring a wine. Now you move on to single drink. And there's another big chunk. That's another 30%, I'm saying. And, I, you know, I'm just making this up. It sounds like I am making up, but it's from my general experience on the bulk of what people drink. So you have, after that beer and wine, you have mixed drinks. Now, when I include with beer and wine, I also mean hard, hard seltzers and hard ciders. So that's all taken in the same one. So yeah, 50% of your drinks are taken care of. And then you have another 30% are single liquor drinks. And you learn to do your pour there. Whether vodka, gin, rum, tequila. Tequila is generally used in multi multi-liquor drinks, and I'll explain that a little later. But 
You learn the op- order of operation on how you do it, taking your glass. Now, you learn things you should learn from experience. Never, you should know this from common sense. Never use the glass in the ice. Meaning, use the glass in the ice. Never use the glass to scoop ice. Always use a metal scooper or plastic scooper to scoop ice into a glass. And when you're building it, unless it's a drink without ice in it, and sometimes people ask, you put your ice in the drink glass first, and then you pour your liquor, and then you pour your mixer, and then you put on your garnish. There you go. You got another 30%. Right there when you know it. So if someone orders in gin and tonic, you learn how to do an ounce and a quarter pour, which you can do with a shot glass in the beginning. And then when you get used to it, you know how to do a free pour, where you go, generally, you'll know how to... And, and people that do free pour always do a little more, it seems like. They rarely don't do a little less. I've had people uh, saying they wanted to see... Uh, me pour. They don't like the idea that sometimes with time you learn how to put the mixer and the liquor in at the same time. So it save you time when you're making a bunch of drinks. You have a soda gun and in your liquor bottle and you go and make a gin and tonic, thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, and you're done. And while that's all going on, you're also filling it with your mixer. So you get that, you got 80%. You got 80% of your drinks if you learn how to do your single liquor drinks. And then you finish up with your multi-drink recipes. You got margaritas, pina coladas, black Russians, martinis, margaritas. Margaritas was what I'm saying. And with that, you got your frozen margarita. You got your, you learn whether how to salt the glass, how to rim the glass. Rimming the glass is putting some kind of substance on the outside, meaning like... As if uh, a key lime martini, we put uh, grain cracker crust on it. So what we do is generally we, we learn how to, you know, get the edge of the glass wet using either uh, there's sponges where you get soak it with a little lime juice and you get that wet and it allows salt or grain cracker crust to adhere to the rim of the glass. These are things that fill in with the knowledge, but... Like I said, that's 20%. That's 20% of your knowledge. You let that go. You let that go. Let me use real life experience right here. What do you see with doctors? They go through internship, residencies. They go to school and they get general knowledge, right? But a bulk, a big bulk of their learning process is just being in the hospital and being under the tutelage of a doctor. And I'm not comparing bartenders to the doctors, but it's a similar similar learning curve. When you're learning how to, you know, make your way through a bar on what to do. This is how you think. Because you can, they, at a bartending school, they don't teach you how to change the soda uh, whatever soda system people have. Most people use bag in a box in the United States right now. They don't tell you necessarily uh, all the systems for running CO2 or changing the kegs or things like that. They can. They can. But these are things you learn from experience. Because you can spend your time learning the minutia of something and you can lose the big picture. 
in the big picture on how to do things together. Like I, when, when I make drinks and if it's really busy, I like to have all my drinks glasses lined up and I like to do all my mixed drinks first. Maybe frozen drink. If I have a fro- couple frozen drinks, I'll make the frozen drinks. And then I'll go and line up my glasses, make those. And then I finish up with, uh, you can do wine at any time because wine doesn't, wine sitting around for one minute doesn't do anything. But when I'm pouring draft beer, I held that for last. And I try to do them all, all together. That's just an order of operation you come that comes with you with experience. And allows you to do things with speed and organization. So just remember, you don't have to really know everything. You just need to go and build your knowledge. Know, knowing what kind of glasses to use, know the order of operation of when, how to build a cocktail. That all comes with time. And you could just fake it in the beginning. If you can get most of it done, if I'm at a busy bar and someone says they may see, mostly they're really good at pouring beers and wine and then doing single drink let that person do that for a while and you do the more complex things if you're working with someone who's relatively new don't poo poo the idea that you know what you get to if you're working with that person you can impart the things that you learned to them and it'll make it easier for you to work with someone and help that person gain their knowledge i've learned uh and and finally like I said, bartending school, if you're willing to put the money in, that's great. You do, you do get something from it. You do. But there's rarely you get someone that comes out of a bartending school who can handle a high volume, uh, you know, multi-drink environment where you got a lot of things going on. So just try to be a little patient with that and be patient with your education. Be patient, meaning that it'll eventually come with time. I'm going to move on here. You know, I did mention that this past weekend I I traveled up north with the wife and daughter for my father's memorial service. And uh, I'm not going to go over through all the interesting things that did happen. Um, I, I did mention that there was a little hiccup in being sent by the TSA to different parts of the airport. Uh, but, you know, generally that was my, my. I should have been more certain and just say, hey, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. It says this gate on the departure uh, board, so I should have just followed that. But generally with these things, when you're going to a memorial service, my father had passed away over a month, uh, about Five weeks earlier. And uh, five, six weeks, yeah, five weeks earlier. And so we've done a lot of the grieving before then. And now we're just doing our memorial where a funeral seems to be like a goodbye. My, my father was cremated and that was done. So there was no farewell to the body. There was more of a focus on memorialization, meaning memorialization is just memory, if you break it down. And you're sharing memories of a person that has passed. Similar to a, a funeral, but this, 
the funeral seems to be more of the rite of passage, meaning you have a you have a body and you're there's a transition from death to uh, uh, from life to death, and you're you're kind of taking it all in. Well, that has happened to us already because we were spending weeks, weeks. My my sister, brother, and I were spending uh, weeks thinking about how we're going to do this for our family. And since my father was older, there wasn't a lot of people there. You know, you can't expect his friends that are in the early to mid 80s and his relatives to make the trip 100 miles to the place he retired. But this was, it, it was a, a close family gathering. We had some cousins, we had some in-laws, and we had a wonderful pastor that came here, Pastor Peter, which we appreciate his time he took. My father wasn't a religious man, but we realized in the end, and it took me a while to realize at the end, that the spiritual religious aspect of the memorial was important for those who needed that. He, they needed to uh, incorporate part of their belief system in uh, the transition to from life to death. And you notice I'm not saying to the afterlife and things like that because everyone has a different belief system than that. And I know you. some people are certain of it. And my father wasn't certain of it. He said, but he was. The one thing my father was certain of, that he either, um, there would be nothing he would ha- contemplate after he died or he would realize that there was something. But that whole revelation would only occur after, after he died. So I I didn't go when I, I was one of the speakers. I I think we had, I think we have, I know we had, we had the pastor speak first. And then my niece came up and she said, said lovely things about her experiences with her grandfather. And I had spent the previous five weeks writing and rewriting things. And I I was torn between the ideas of, am I sharing my experiences of this person or am I trying to channel the things that he wanted me, because my father did ask me, to, to make sure that I did some detailed work on his life, meaning he, he didn't feel as if he spent enough time doing the work for his mother when she had passed and giving a proper explanation, explanation or presentation. I don't even know really how to present that, but it, it generally is kind of like you're giving an outline of this person how, how they were, how the way you knew them, how the way he experienced the people that are surviving around him and what he thought and uh, the way he behaved and a summation of their life. How, how did they approach life in the end? What, what, was, what were the things, these accomplishments that they were most proud of? that they were able to commit? And what are the ones that we think that uh, 
we need to point out too about them. So I was torn between that doing that personal observation or things that I'm trying to create what everyone experienced about my father. And I would I I thought it was my job to call attention to his development as a person from being younger, a quick uh, summation, let's say, from where he grew up and, and his parents and how his general outlook was on life. What he, what he thought ha- about his, like the prevailing quality of his character and it was so tough to do that. It was really tough to do that. Take someone's life and try to summarize it and summarize their character. Meaning, yes, you can say someone was a good person, but why were they a good person? What aspects of their behavior and their personality made them a good person? Were they outwardly good? Did they talk a good game? Or did they act a good game? Meaning, was their life actually a testament to what good is? You know, that's that's a tough point. And I've I was in the rest um, the catering business for a long time. And we used to do a lot of uh, post-funeral luncheons and as a manager and sometimes bartending and I would I would hear people talking about the deceased and you can hear everyone is common most people are upset and at most of these funeral luncheons as the tradition in the United States they're held within three days of the person's passing um, sometimes it's all of a sudden. Other times it was similar to my father. It was an expected outcome of an illness. And people reacted differently by that, but they also reacted to how they spoke about that person and what, it, what they had to share about that person. Most people in my general through my almost 60 years on earth are are either they're good most people are good now some people are more forceful in their goodness i mean they, they express themselves they express their goodness outwardly through their acts and how they interact with people and some people don't do that they're they're good but they're more timid about their goodness. And you, you just, they, you, don't, you don't see it. And people say, well, you know, you can't be good if you don't act that way. No, not necessarily. There's some people that are, are more reserved in how they interact with the world. They have more of a inner life than they do a, an active one going out, meaning doing things. My, my father, fortunately for for me, being able to explain when you have to express that to someone, it's easier to express it when they do do things outwardly, like volunteering 
and uh, interacting with other people, being kind and thoughtful. So generally, people have good things to say about people that are past, but depending on how expressive they were in their lives, it it would be harder to express that for some people that are quiet. You know what I mean? You can say when someone passed, they said they liked the garden and they liked to read Joan Collins novels. You know, you didn't get a lot from those people. They didn't talk to you. They didn't tell you. You don't see them volunteering at the local soup kitchen or doing things like my dad did, you know, teaching uh, inmates uh, occupational skills, how, how to apply for jobs and how to prepare uh, resumes and dress for work and, and, and just these life skills that they need to transition or um, do pro bono, tax, pro bono taxes for uh, low-income seniors, which he did. And all the other things he did to volunteer and how he was kind to his neighbors and his family and all that stuff. That's easy. That is easy. It's hard when you have to summarize it. It's hard to summarize it. And it's easy to infer when people are doing these good works to say they were a good person. But, you know, for these other people where they have more quiet or reserved lives, it may be harder to express that. That they may have been able to reserve their, their interactions were more to their immediate family and to maybe some pets they had. They may have, you know, their kindnesses could have been more private. So it does take a it does take quite, you know, a different a skill set to really summarize these things and to give a feeling and say, you know, I'm not just going to tell you about my feelings. I want to give you something tangible. This is what they did. This is how they acted. This is what they thought. This is actually what he said. This is what he said. If you can remember some things that they said, um, I the one of the most important things I wanted to express to people is say, listen, uh, it's really important that you know the person you knew, the person that this guy presented himself to be, that's the way he was in private with his family. And he was consistent. And his biggest qualm with things, with people, were people that would profess something publicly and practice different behavior privately. And, and a lot of people are like that. And that was one of my father's biggest problems with religion, that you hear people that were adherents of uh, a religious icon, let's say Jesus, who who espoused peace, love, caring, sharing, helping your fellow neighbor, loving your fellow neighbor, and uh, I, I think I may have said forgiveness, but all those things. But when he saw people were, you know, kind of petty and abusive and maybe the opposite of peace, the opposite of love, the opposite of sharing, we see the greed, that bothered him. And that kind of turned him off to those things. 
And I, I had to balance that because we had a wonderful pastor there speaking. And the way he uh, described it, it was, though, with his interactions with my father, my, this pastor had been uh, associated with the pastoral care component of his, my father's health care towards the end of his life. He said that my father uh, kind of lived a life of what he thought, the pastor thought, was a good Christian. And, and then I said, well, that, that I explained to the pastor, I said, you know, that was his credo. He says, you know, it's more important to behave and act than it is to profess that you believe in something. So just the actions, the, the, you know, the actions of it and stuff like that. And I'm not trying to express to you, this is not an additional memorial. I'm just talking about if you in the future, listener, have to speak about someone, try to think of the essence of the person you're speaking about. The essence of that person. What they were like. Not in uh, necessarily some people have a harder uh, row to hoe when it comes to describing a person's life, when they had some people had some severe ups and downs, some rough spots in their lives where it's hard to describe positively that person. And, you know, that's that, that I, I would not know. I would not know how to do that because fortunately I haven't had to speak on behalf of people that weren't, were less than, let's say, less than outwardly giving or caring or sweet and things like that. So I've only had the fortune of speaking uh, for people on behalf of that person. And that's what I thought I was doing. I was speaking on behalf of that person. And I had to be considerate and then think what would my father have wanted me to say and what was his true intentions and things like that, which obviously you can't know 100% someone's full intentions, but I did know by his behavior at the end how he wanted me to care for my stepmother, how he wanted me to present his, his life, that he gave me general knowledge of that, and I was able to consistently do that because he behaved that way at the end, and I didn't have to do anything that was against my scruples. It was easy. And I think that's the best benefit when, someone, when you had to deal with someone, when someone had to summarize anything about someone's life, that they consistently behaved the way they wanted to be betrayed. That's probably like the best we can ever hope for. Well, this is Jim the Keys Bartender. I'd like to thank you for listening. Sorry if that was a downer at the end of it, but at the end of the memorial service, I wanted to say my father led a life of, of joy and happiness. He did, and he wanted the people to be happy. So I said, you know, I understand that you, if you're missing him, you know, or relatives and all that stuff, you're missing my father, that's all right to cry. But then again, he, we have to remember that we're very lucky to have known him. We're very fortunate to have known him. And that should leave a smile on her face when we think about those people. And I'm sure there's people in your life that are that way. And if they're not, you deserve to have them in your life. So try to seek them out and be around those people. This is Jim the Keys Bartender signing off. Have a great day. Bye.